Starting Proverbs is good timing with today's sermon, which is about holiness. And um, where does holiness come from? That is, what, what, what motivating factors for holiness will work? People are obedient. People try to be holy for a lot of different reasons, a lot of different motivations. And most of them don't work especially over the long term, especially when things get hard. When you see people, we've all known brothers and sisters in Christ, who've been burnt out on Christianity. It just demands too much of them. Well, that's not because Christianity demands too much of them. It's because the motivation that they've been taught to use for holiness wears them out rather than feeding them and giving them fuel for the fire. Uh, And so we're going to talk about that in Peter And Peter will talk about holiness quite a bit over the course of his first letter. And as we study Proverbs, what what we're studying here is what does holiness look like applied in the human life? What is wisdom? Wisdom is holiness, righteousness applied to real life situations. And that's what Proverbs is about. So we're going to study Proverbs for the next several months or as we probably now call it in this church. Y'all remember that time when Solomon wasn't crazy? Uh, and that's that's what we've got is this collection of wisdom sayings, this time that are actually trustworthy and believable from Solomon. Um, and we're going to think about these through the lens of living a holy life and through the lens of uh, pleasing God. Really getting down to the nitty gritty. What is Proverbs. Proverbs is a collection of wisdom. And as we read the book, we're going to see that the wisdom comes from a lot of sources. Solomon will be referenced here at the beginning. And Solomon is probably the source of a lot of this wisdom. But Solomon's not referred to in the beginning as this is everything that Solomon had to say and only what Solomon had to say. Because we're going to hear other people's names in the course of Proverbs. Oh, these are the sayings of Agur. These are the sayings of Lemuel. Remember from Ecclesiastes that wisdom, for lack of a better term, there was kind of a wisdom industry in the ancient world. There's still a wisdom industry today. It's the self-help section of every bookstore where people gather good practical advice And then they try to collect it together for how to apply it to life. Uh, Some of them do that very poorly. Some of them do it quite well. But that's what that section is. That's the, let's take sort of the collective wisdom and figure out what that looks like in practice, how to use it. And so the reference to Solomon here at the beginning of Proverbs is in that spirit. It's Solomon, yes, he contributed a lot of this. He may have been uh, responsible for collecting all of this uh, particular wisdom together. But it's Solomon as part of the wisdom industry, as part of that movement of how should knowledge be applied in the world. Um, So, uh, Stephen, would you read 1 through 7? The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, 
The words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. All right, so this is telling us the content and, more importantly, the purpose of the book. Why is this being written and why is this in the Bible? And the goal is to guide the reader into wisdom. And that wisdom is going to, word wisdom, is going to be a critical thing for us to think about um, and not oversimplify, but to kind of let it be complex. Let it be a diamond that's pretty multifaceted because wisdom is the, the sum of a lot of things. When you think about wisdom, what are some of the, what, what is required for wisdom to exist? What are some of the things that make up wisdom? Some of the words are in the, the passage that Stephen just read. Knowledge. Knowledge. So knowledge, what's knowledge? Knowing. Knowing. Knowing truth. Right information. A collection of propositions, facts, a collection of statements of things that are, for it to be right knowledge, true. But So we should say that too. It requires right knowledge or truth, right? So that's a facet of this. You can't get to wisdom without knowledge. You have to know stuff in order to be wise. But to be wise, which is a biblical word, you can't just know any stuff. You have to know true stuff. You have to know the things that are right. You have to know truth. And you have to be able to have the discernment. To ah, so now we get to discernment, which we're also going to talk about at a big level up here. Discernment is going to be an important concept on its own, but discernment is an important concept under the knowledge column because how do you know if something is true? There's lots of information out there. By what criteria do you decide truth versus falsehood? And so we say, spelling. It's a falsehood. Bad spelling. We, we say, um, what do we say is the only perfect rule for faith and practice? Scripture is the only perfect rule for faith and practice. So as we are trying to discern what is true and what is false, one of our big criteria is if it actually contradicts scripture not apparently contradicts because some things are complicated and we got to dig into them and wrestle with them but if it actually at the end of the day does disagree with scripture it can't be true it can't be because there is no falsehood in god period scripture is perfect the bible says it is inerrant it is without error in what it teaches so if what is being suggested to us, the fact that we're evaluating, 
ultimately disagrees with what the Bible teaches. It is not truth, and therefore it is not right knowledge, and therefore it does not lead to wisdom. You have to follow that chain all the way down. So that's really critical. We have to have truth, which means we have to have discernment. And if we're going to have discernment, we have to have a standard for truth. Where does truth come from? How do we determine what it is? I said ours was scripture. If it's not scripture, it has to be something. Everyone has an ultimate authority. Everyone has, and when we say ultimate authority, what we mean is everyone has a standard by which they discern from all the facts what's true and what's false. Every single person in the world has a standard. What is most people's standard? Their wants, themselves. Right? The most honest non-Christians are the ones who will come out and say, I don't believe that's true because I don't want it to be true. That's the most honest thing a non-Christian can say. When they say, I don't believe it's true because blah, blah, blah. No, no, no. Nope, nope. I can go through every one of those and show you that's not right. That's not why you're rejecting it. Nope. You believe all kinds of things on worse standards than that and less evidence than that. And nope, it's you don't want it. Now, some people have standards that are not themselves and that are not God. Most of the time, those people end up in cults. They're looking for someone else to be their absolute standard. And whatever that person says is going to be the standard by which they discern what is right and true. And they're going to end up doing whatever that person says, ultimately, or that thing says. And that's how people end up drinking the Kool-Aid, right? Literally. For most people, though, they'll look at what other people say, what other standards say, and they'll think, I don't want to do that. I, I, I don't want it. That's not right. Those statements will become synonymous. What I don't want to do is not right. And so now they've revealed what their standard is, is themselves. They get to decide what is right, what is wrong, what is truth, and what is error. So you can see to have wisdom, we've got to go all the way down this chain. So when Proverbs claims to be a book about wisdom... It's going to be about multiple things, but what do you think Proverbs is going to emphasize again and again and again and again as the standard by which we discern truth? God's word. The word of the Lord. Your laws, your precepts, your statutes. It's going to be over and over again. That's why the, the genre, we talk about the Bible has genres, right? The gospels are a genre. Uh, historical narrative is a genre. You think about a book like Genesis and Exodus where it tells you the history of what's happening with God's people. That's a genre. Uh, apocalyptic prophecy is a genre, right? Revelation is there and the Olivet Discourse and, and some of the minor prophets. The genre of these books is called wisdom literature. The genre of Song of Songs, the genre of uh, Ecclesiastes, the genre of Proverbs, this is, and the book Psalms, these are wisdom literature. 
And that's why one of the things you'll see in common in every single one of those books is what is the standard by which truth is judged? Isn't that what we just did with Solomon and Ecclesiastes? We, we said, if you set up two different standards by which truth is judged, where do you go from there? What happens to life? How do you find answers? How do you find purpose and meaning? And Solomon said, I'll set myself up as the standard. I will only look under the sun. I will not receive the revelation from God. And I will follow this path where it leads. And it leads to crazy town. And then the, the editor of Ecclesiastes, with the bookends at the beginning and the end, says, let me show you the alternative. <laughs> let me show you how to not end up in crazy town. And what he said, the fear of the Lord. Right? His precepts, his word. So that's a really important component of wisdom. But there's another aspect in which discernment is kind of deserves its own column. Because is are you wise simply by possessing accurate knowledge? Right? We've met people like this before. We've been inclined to be like this before where we think just because we have knowledge, we are doing wisdom. But you can take things that are true and ruin them. You can take facts that are correct and grossly misapply it. Totally do it wrong. Right? You can, and we're gonna see that a lot in Proverbs as we talk about how Proverbs teach wisdom they're teaching more than just knowledge, which is like a simple, um, one, of the, one of the sayings about Bible teaching that I'll talk about from one of my professors is uh, meaning is not a dot. Meaning is a circle, right? And so one of the places we get sideways with Proverbs is if we look at these Proverbs as a dot and we say that proverb must be rigidly applied in every single situation in life. No, that's not even what the Proverbs themselves are doing. That's why you'll find, on the surface, contradictory Proverbs. One that says to do this, and the other says, whatever you do, don't do that. You find that in the Proverbs. Why? Because it's not about that center of the circle meaning. It's about taking things that are right and true and then figuring out, does this apply here, in this situation, in this moment, in this event? And that's where you get start to get the circle. And again, we'll, we'll unpack a lot of this over the next few months. But that is the kind of discernment that gets into, uh, if this is discernment of truth, this is discernment of application. I don't know. Does that have one Peter two? It's so sad, y'all. A master's degree and he can't spell words. Discernment of application. Do you answer a fool according to his folly? What does Proverbs tell you? Well, what do you mean? Isn't there a verse in Proverbs that tells you exactly what to do with a fool? Do and do not. Right? So there's two verses back to back. If you don't know what we're talking about, Proverbs has two verses back to back. And the first one says, answer a fool according to his folly because blah, blah, blah. And the second one says, do not answer a fool according to his folly because blah, blah, blah. What in the world do we make of that? It's telling us discernment of application. You've got to figure out what kind of fool is this? What kind of situation is this? 
What am I working with here? That's the discernment of application. What truth applies here? So let's do let's do a, a easy one. When our soldiers go into battle, and let's presume it's a just war. Let's let's presume that our soldiers are fighting a war that they should fight. So our soldiers are in war and they're defending our country and they're fighting a war that they should fight. And now the enemy comes up and the enemy points a gun at them and they've got a gun because they're a soldier and they have to decide, what am I going to do now? And the soldiers are Christian. And they say, I've got to do what the Bible tells me to do in every situation. So here I am in war, and here's my enemy, and I've got my gun, and he's got his gun, and how do I know what I'm going to do? Well, you got to think about what the truths are that are in the Bible. Because that person's already decided the Bible is their standard. So what are the truths in the Bible that are relevant in this situation? Well, one of them is the sixth commandment. Thou shalt not kill. So does, that answers the question, right? This is done. Does the Bible teach other relevant truths? Yeah. In fact, the Bible teaches that there are some scenarios where in order to keep the sixth commandment, which is the preservation of innocent life, you actually have to break at the word level the rule that it tells you to keep. Don't kill anybody. The Bible actually tells you there may be times where you have to kill someone to keep the law that says thou shalt not murder. Well, how, what? Discernment is what's required. Knowledge wasn't enough because your knowledge was either going to be incomplete if you only knew the sixth commandment or your knowledge was going to be complex and, and superficially contradictory if you knew everything the Bible says about killing and self-defense and preservation of life and murder. If you knew all those things, well, that doesn't answer the question for you. There has to be something above those facts. The knowledge of those facts doesn't tell you how to be holy. It's essential that you know the facts in order to be holy. You can't be holy without that knowledge. But having that knowledge is not enough. And so what the Bible calls the ability to actually be holy, which includes knowledge, but also includes this discernment of application, that is wisdom. Wisdom is right truth from the right standard applied the right way in any given situation. That's what wisdom is. What, uh, what questions do you have about that? What's the relationship between the scripture, the standard, and what Proverbs used, the fear of the Lord? What's the kind of the relationship between those? Yeah, the, the, uh, and that's a great question, especially in light of Ecclesiastes, where we saw Solomon use the phrase, the fear of the Lord. And when he used it in Ecclesiastes, he was talking about being scared of God's arbitrariness, being scared of the fact that you never know what God is going to do. So Solomon in Ecclesiastes uses that phrase, the fear of the Lord, in an unbiblical way, in a way that is not true. God is not capricious and arbitrary. God is predictable within his own nature. He can be understood. How? Because he revealed himself. So the fear of the Lord is about having a right 
um, orientation toward God, recognizing that he is the creator and we are the creature, recognizing that he is sovereign and in control and we are not, while also recognizing in, you know, the diff- like fear is a real thing, but awe is a kind of fear too, isn't it? So fear of the Lord has both components, he's God and I'm not, but also the awe of he is understandable. He has revealed himself. So fear of the Lord requires that standard of scripture without which we end up where Solomon ended up because we can't understand God by looking at the world. We can understand that there is a God, but we can't understand the heart of God by looking at the world. We can't understand the hope that we have in God by looking at the world. We've got to go to something else. And fear of the Lord is that humility to both recognize we can't get there from here and uh, to stand in awe that God would reveal himself to us. That's something that we just, we so completely take for granted. God did not have to tell us nothing. Nothing. We have all this knowledge that comes from scripture. We have all of this truth that God has revealed to us. We have all of these promises about our future. And God was obligated to tell us none of them. So the fact that he revealed himself, his wisdom, his truth, so that we would have a trustworthy standard rather than, "Mm, what do I think is true today? What do I feel like is going to happen next? That is absolutely incredible. And not at all surprising if you know God. Who's got, uh, Renee, you have 1 Corinthians 1, 24 and 30. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And because of him, you are in Christ, Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. What is Christ? According to those verses, the wisdom of God. That's why John calls him the word made flesh. The the way that we're to understand Christ in the Trinity is that Christ, the the second person of the Trinity, is the reflection, the manifestation of the truth of God, the nature of God. He's the perfect representation of the essence of God. Christ is the truth. So the word of Christ, the scriptures, all of which testifies of him, is what God gave us in addition to the person, the incarnation of Christ, so that we could get there from here. And then he goes one step beyond that, and he gives us the Holy Spirit so we can understand the thing. Because we're not so good at understanding. But it's absolutely incredible that God would do this for us. And by the same token, it's completely predictable that God would do this for us because of who he is, because Christ is the word. Christ is the wisdom of God. Did that answer your question? Other questions about any of that so far? You'll hear me, I try to stay away from um, theological jargon most of the time, but sometimes 
some of these complicated terms serve a really important purpose. So let's look at three real quick, and I bet you'll be familiar with two of them. So one of them is orthodoxy. Who knows what orthodoxy means? Right thinking. What's an orthodontist? What does an orthodontist do? Straighten your teeth. <laughs> they make your teeth right, set to the standard. So when you think about ortho, you think about aligning with a standard. So that's right. Orthodoxy, doxy is words or theology, is right doctrine, right thinking, right words about God, words that are correctly aligned to the standard. What is the standard? The standard is God, right words. So if you say somebody is orthodox, you mean they have right doctrine. The things they believe are aligned with the standard, what the Bible teaches. So another word is orthopraxy. What do you think that means? Right, straight, in line with the standard. Practice. The things that you do, the things that you practice, are also aligned with the standard. So you believe the things that are aligned with the standard, and you do the things that are aligned with the standard. Everybody clear on those two words? All right, a third one that you may not have heard as much, but is the one I get all wrapped around the axle about, is orthokresis. Orthokresis is right in the same way, meaning aligned with the standard, judgment. And to me, I agree with the theologians who say that is the goal of the Christian life. The goal of the Christian life is not orthodoxy. Orthodoxy is required. You must believe the right things, and God is very interested by the power of the Holy Spirit in teaching you the right things. Orthopraxy is not the goal of the Christian life. It's very important to the Christian life. God tells you what is expected of you, O oh man, and you ought to do those things. Right? God cares about this, and that is an important part of the Christian life. But what is the goal for me? What is God trying to get out of me, to do in me, to change in me? He's trying to develop in me right judgment so that when I come to a situation, no matter what that situation is, I know what truths are in play here and what is the right application of those truths in the right way, in the right measure, in the right tone in this moment? That's what God wants out of you. That's the end game of sanctification. When you are perfected in Christ, you will get it right every single time. Can you imagine that? Is that not discernment? It, 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 is, it is discernment, but it's the ability to discern that he's trying to develop in us. Can you imagine every interaction you have in your work, whatever that work is, whatever it is you make, produce, and do in life, that in every single situation you would know exactly the right thing to do in the right way. In every conversation you have with another person, you know exactly how to balance, not just in theoretical world, but in that moment, how to love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and how to love that person as you love yourself. That will be incredible. 
but you don't have to wait. You have to wait for perfection. But you don't have to wait to have right judgment developed in you. That's what God's trying to do in you between now and glory, is more and more develop this right judgment, which is simply wisdom. Wisdom applied. That's what God's trying to do uh, for us and in us. And that's the goal of Proverbs. Proverbs is uh, Solomon's uh, expression of a guidebook for Wisdom 101. If I'm going to teach a class on how to get to orthokresis, if I'm going to teach a class on discernment and how to be wise and truth and knowledge, this is the content of that class. And that's the book of Proverbs. And so Proverbs has two distinct styles. It has kind of a section one, and then you have the mid-semester break, and it has section two. And section one are much longer saying. So for the first nine chapters, we take things a paragraph at a time or multiple paragraphs at a time because Solomon is unpacking big concepts. He's spending a lot of words teaching this category of thing. Why application matters, what right application looks like, how to do it. That's the first nine chapters. So if you go through your Bible and you just look at the pages in Proverbs, you should see in the first nine chapters big sections of text that have occasional section headings. And then when you get past chapter nine, you're going to get to the section of proverbial sayings, which are one or two sentences. And there may be five in a chapter that have nothing to do with one another. The chapter numbers at that point become completely random and arbitrary. It's just a bunch of proverbial sayings. And it's going to be really important for us to have gotten the first nine chapters under our belt so we have a way of thinking about wisdom so that when we come to those, we know what to do with them. Because Proverbs are not universally applicable. Proverbs are not because the Bible has these two sentences in every single situation, it's telling me to apply those two sentences here. That is not how to read wisdom literature. How to read wisdom literature is to know all of the things the Bible says that are true and then to apply them with discernment. And that's, so before he loads up our bucket with wisdom in the back half of the book, he spends the first half driving that point home again and again. Um, and usually, when you get to the proverbial sayings, there are going to be two sentences um, that are going to be a contrast to one another. Wisdom says this, folly says that. This leads to life, that leads to death. And you're going to get these contrasts again and again. Um, the Reformation Study Bible says this about Proverbs. Wisdom is a way of thinking about reality that enables one to pursue what is good in life. If I'm gonna, this is an important aspect of today's sermon and what Peter says in today's text. <clears throat> there can be lots of motivations for pursuing holiness. But the one that works is if we come to understand holiness as being what is good in life. The best thing that can happen in your life is that you are close to God. That's, that's it. That's that the Bible's 
you could boil all of it down to what you need most, the way a person can have an incredible life, life, right? Everlasting life, all of life, not just this blink of an eye life, not just this moment, though it does include that, is to be very close to God in grace, not in judgment. So that's an important caveat. But the pursuit of wisdom can be motivated by fear. God's going to smite me if I don't do what's wise, if I don't pursue holiness. That'll help you every now and then. It's, it, it will not let you build a life of holiness. You can uh, pursue wisdom out of guilt. I feel bad, and i got to make up for the bad stuff that I did by doing some more good stuff. And that might work for a little while. You cannot build a life. Um, you can pursue wisdom out of a sense of obligation. Some of us are wired that way. We're very much conformist rule followers. That's what God told me to do. God's in charge, so I'm going to do that. But believe it or not, you can't even build a life on that. Those are the those who end up exhausting ourselves, if that's our motivation. And so what Proverbs says is, no, 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 no. There's this beautiful, glorious, good life. That life is closeness with God. And the way you get close with God is to be like God. And he is holy, so you be holy. Not because that's what earns you the place next to God. God gave you that relationship with him. But it's the question of God picked me up and set me next to him on a path. I am here entirely by grace, arm in arm with God. And now as we walk, I can walk God's way and remain close with God, or I can walk off my own way and put some distance between me and God. That's my choice. And so what Proverbs says is, it's not that you should pursue wisdom, pursue holiness out of any of those other motivations. It's that you should pursue wisdom and holiness out of the belief that this is the good life. And that is going to run completely contrary to what the world tells us. And so we're going to have to look at that again and again and say, who's telling the truth? Is scripture telling the truth that the pursuit of God and holiness is the good life? Or... Is all of this a sham and we're burying our heads in the sand, missing out on all of this fun and goodness that's out in the world just because we've decided we're going to pursue God? That's a valid question. Let's ask it. And Proverbs will have some things to say about that. So Proverbs is going to include instruction in the passage Stephen read here at the beginning of Proverbs. The word instruction was there. That's going to be the gathering up of these facts. Right? Instruction is there's truth out there. We got to get it in your head. So we're going to instruct you to put that truth in your head. But there's also, in the passage Stephen read, the first seven verses, there's the word insight. That gets more of this discernment thing, doesn't it? Why is that true? How is that truth manifest and applied in the world? Um, the Westminster Confession of Faith will talk about something called good and necessary consequence. Well, that's a good thing to think about because does the Bible directly answer every situation that you will face. Does the Bible say a word about inappropriate material on the internet? No. Does the Bible say a word about cheating on homework? No. 
But if you have the instruction from the Bible and the insight into what God wants you to do with those truths, those facts, do you have the ability to judge rightly how I'm to behave with regards to what's on the internet or my homework assignment? Yes, I have everything I need. The Bible gives you everything you need to answer every situation you will encounter. But it starts with a collection of facts, but it's more than a collection of facts. It's facts and insight. And so that gets us back to the fear of the Lord, the topic that Jake brought up, which is the only basis for true knowledge. Part of it is the why. You can't pursue knowledge for its own sake. I mean, you can, but it will fail you, and nobody will like you. <laughs> right? People who just pursue knowledge for the sake of knowledge. I want to know things because I know things. And you know what my favorite part of knowing things is? That you don't know. And so I'm going to tell you the things you don't know, because I know things and you don't know them. And that's why I went to know these things, so I'd have something you don't have. Right? No, no, no. Why do we pursue knowledge? Fear of the Lord. We pursue knowledge because knowledge is one of the tools that God gives to his covenant people who ask for it. Ask me for this and I will pour it out on you generously. We ask God for knowledge, facts. He gives us knowledge, facts. Why? So that we can pursue wise lives that glorify him because wise lives are good lives that that's going to be the hardest thing for us to wrap our minds around I, I think for a lot of us the idea that godliness is the path to happiness that is number one so countercultural but number two sadly for many of us it's counter to our church experience. Where our church experience is, God's desire is for you to be holy and miserable. <laughs> if you ain't miserable, you ain't living right. And God in his wisdom comes along and says, wait a minute, is God perfectly holy? Yeah. Is God unhappy? Oh. Right? In God, there are endless delights. God is joy. A fruit of being with God is joy. Not joy in every single moment in this fallen same world, but that's because of us in the fall and the sin and the curse. It's not because of any defect in God's holiness. There will come a time where because we are perfectly holy, we are perfectly joyful. Not the other way around. God, if you'll make me joyful, then I'll try harder and I'll be holier. Right? No, it's actually the opposite. If God will make us holy, joy comes from that. And so Proverbs is going to say, this is the good life, you guys. The fear of the Lord is the good life. And that's the only motivation that will ever work, that will ever see us through on this path to the last day. Everything else will fail us, or, and one of the ways it will fail us is wearing us out. 
And so if you come from one of those backgrounds, like many of us did, where the answer is try harder, that's not what Proverbs is going to tell you. Proverbs is going to tell you, see more clearly. See more clearly. And when you see more clearly, it gets easier, not harder. Holiness comes, I don't want to say more natural, I, I, you know, more naturally, not in a natural human sense, but it comes as a cause and effect of seeing God more clearly, having that truth and discernment, having what comes from God, having fear of the Lord. Questions about that? What questions do you have about that? Let's talk about <laughs> I have a statement which you can correct as needed. Uh, These elders. More just an emphasis. When we think about orthokresis being the goal of the Christian life, right judgment, that can sound what we sometimes get accused of being a sterile mental exercise. Where you did say, it's God also is changing what you want, your reasons for. That's right. I know what's right in this situation is different, is, is deficient if you don't also have. I'm, I want to do what's right in this situation because I love this person, even there's, though it's hard. Like, there's a great line in the sermon today, and I can say it's a great line because it's not mine. I'm quoting a commentator uh, about how um, God cares about the head and the heart and the knowledge, the facts that are in your head will never get you to heaven. Never. Never. If those facts don't sink down into your heart, you will never be with God. Both are required. But God also makes it clear in Scripture that the way he gets to the heart is by putting first those thoughts in the head. You have to know the God that you are going to love. You can, I mean, the, the distinction we make with, with when we were all kids and your first crush and that concept of puppy love compared with real love, right? Puppy love's a good thing. We shouldn't make fun of it. It's, fun. it's, it's an important part of life. It's fun, right? There's nothing wrong with that. But why do we say that that puppy love is so different from the love that comes in 15 years of marriage? What's the difference? How much you know the person you love. That's the difference. How much you know them. So if you are going to love God in such a way that you make your entire life a living sacrifice before him. You can't just know truths about him. Those truths have to have really dropped from there to here that you, you believe them, you trust. I mean, to me, it ends up coming down to trust. I know everything God says. When I stray from God, I'm not trusting God. I don't believe he actually accepts me or I don't believe he'll actually uh, look out for me if I don't look out for myself. I just, I just don't, I don't want to trust God. That's risky. It's very vulnerable to trust somebody with your life. And so I can know everything that's true about God. But, but that, that, that right approach to orthokresis, the way you're going to find that joyful life is when you actually trust God, when it settles here. Um, yeah, so that's a great, great statement as much as I hate to admit one of our <laughs> um, I think about knowing these truths before I was a Christian uh -huh. and then after I was a Christian and I knew the same facts but my understanding of them was different so what role would you say the Holy Spirit yeah. plays in this of bringing understanding so a simplistic way would be to say that movement from head to heart 
only the Spirit can push down. Because you have a heart that is completely made of stone, with a lockbox, with 17 padlocks. There ain't nothing getting into that heart from God. Until the Holy Spirit comes and gives you the new birth. And suddenly all those locks and chains fall away. The heart is now receptive and things move from your head to your heart. Um, I would also put as a, so that's the most important one. I would also put as a caveat though, there are elements of those truths that you couldn't even really know in the head until the spirit revealed them to you. Right, So you can know facts about God. You can know um, things that the Bible says. But there are facets or aspects of those truths, even on an intellectual level, that with human eyes we simply cannot see. You don't have the fear of the Lord. If you're not a believer, you don't have the fear of the Lord. So you can't come to the yeah, Bible. Yeah, you can't get to wisdom. Yeah. You, can, you can get knowledge, but not all the knowledge. And then the Holy Spirit can supplement that with the fullness of knowledge. But the Holy Spirit is also the primary actor in moving things from head to heart. And again, that's not to say you're, uh, you're not an active participant in that process, moving it from the head to the heart. You have a, a role to play in that. But until the Spirit breaks the heart of stone and puts in a heart of flesh, you won't try, and even if you tried, it wouldn't work. You've got to have the new birth that Peter talked about in last week's passage. You must be born again. Jesus says that unless you are born again, you'll never get it. 